0: Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Karetha Mitchell, the author of From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. This is her third book. She's a scholar at The Ohio State University, specializing in African-American literature, racial violence in literature, and black drama and performance. So first of all, thanks so much for being here, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you. Well, we're so glad you're here. And and we're really glad we're talking about such an important and powerful word, the word citizenship. Um, It signifies inclusion. It signifies rights. And at least in theory, citizenship is not something that must be earned if you're born um, here in the United States, at least under the rules we have. But Um, This is such an important conversation to have right now because Blacks in the United States are more likely to have deadly encounters with police officers, to encounter obstacles in casting their ballot, and to attend schools that are not properly funded. So, um, Dr. Mitchell's book is so great and so fascinating because it examines how Blacks in America have had to design their own versions of citizenship because full citizenship has not yet been granted. So, Uh, First of all, Dr. Mitchell, you write that even as accomplishments have been discouraged, denied, or destroyed, African Americans have continued to strive. You say they cultivate a sense of belonging from scratch. I want to repeat that. They cultivate a sense of belonging from scratch. So Dr. Mitchell, explain what that means.
1: Sure. Um, And thank you again for having me.
0: That's my it's, it's my pleasure. This is going to be a great conversation. I'm thrilled you you agreed.
1: Yeah. So cultivating a sense of belonging from scratch is so important for me because the idea, right, is that we have a social contract whereby if citizens are, you know, law abiding, for example, then they should be able to expect that their government will protect the safety of their person and their property. That's a general social contract that supposedly is in operation. But for African-Americans being law-abiding citizens and even extremely moral law-abiding citizens does not necessarily mean at all that they will be treated as if they belong and as if they are citizens. So for me, that's why it's important to think about what does it take when the larger entity of the United States and the United States government doesn't provide basic resources that it's expected to provide, when it doesn't provide that, then how do African Americans create a sense of belonging? And what I'm saying is that it's from scratch because, you know, making a recipe from scratch means that you don't have the the ingredients that you're supposed to have that should be um, provided in some kind of more convenient <laughs> Uh, arrangement, right? And so for African Americans, that's exactly the case we're in. That's the situation we're in.
0: Is it a natural byproduct from being in the situation that you describe that people, no matter what kind of group they're in, will create their own citizenship, whether it's to a country or a community?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, I think that human nature involves a sense of belonging, we're social beings. And so it would make sense then, yes, as humans, we are going to search for those ways of belonging, almost as a matter of course. I hadn't thought of it in the terms that you put it, but yeah, Mm -hmm. I would say that's probably true.
0: And so explain if you can, um, before we get into the book even more, but explain if you can, Um, Where this kind of um, grew in you, where this book and where this theory kind of grew from, um, you know, is it just from not just your studies and and living a life as a professor, but also from seeing what's going on in the news and seeing what's going on out there and and living and talking to people that these two kind of tracks of your work and of what you were observing grew together as one? Is that where this came from or is it something else?
1: You know, It was very straightforward in terms of coming out of what I learned from writing my first book. Um, My first book, Living With Lynching, is about plays about lynching written before 1930. And the biggest thing I learned from writing that book is that African-Americans weren't lynched because they were criminals most often they were lynched because they were successful in some way. And Mm -hmm. so it was the lynching that allowed um, white Americans who wanted to put Black people back in their so-called proper place. That's what allowed them to do that. You're free now. I want you to remember your proper place. Let me terrorize your community. You think you should be able to argue for a decent price for your crop let me put you back in your proper place. You think you should be able to protect your wife or daughter from sexual assault and sexual harassment from white men. Let me remind you of your proper place. Hmm. And so learning that lesson by writing Living With Lynching stuck with me, (laughs) to say the least. Hmm. And so what I was interested in thinking about is not only is it the case that mobs most often targeted African Americans because they were successful in some way, not only was that the case, but it was also the case that African Americans knew that their success beckoned the mob. So I was like, okay, wait a second, if Black people know that they are making themselves targets by being successful, then maybe we're missing something big by always approaching African-American literature as if it is protest literature. Maybe we need to be looking at how are they thinking about success? How are they defining success? And how are they changing their definition of success to continue to pursue it after they're attacked for some smaller level of success? And that is what I got really serious about exploring. And that's what this book does. It explores the question of if black people know that they are making themselves targets by pursuing success, how in the world do they keep pursuing it? And how do they convince each other to keep pursuing it? How do they work in community to debate what success even looks like? Because that is part of what has to be debated. How do I even define success in a nation that will punish me for every iteration of it?
0: And And so it really
1: came from living with lynching.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to talk about a couple of the the arguments um, that you make about uh, where that success um, is then grounded and based in. But one of your arguments is that when African-Americans reach a certain station, they face this new level of Opposition. Now, you know the most obvious example, and I hesitate to to bring it up uh, at least this early in the conversation, would be President Obama. I mean, he gets elected president. The man who turns out to be the next president makes his political name on questioning President Obama's very citizenship, which is the same word that you know we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, so one might say that that's an atypical story right because how many people actually get to become president but is that but it, and it is atypical but is that example indicative
1: it's very much indicative and i think that part of what my challenge was was to understand that it's an extreme example but it's happening in smaller ways all over the place and for me what was really striking was to recognize that even the modest success of you know enslaved people who continued to hold on to their bonds to each other even that modest success was punished quite seriously so that's the reason why i think for me um, Obama is an important example in the book and Michelle Obama is an important example in the book because they are such extreme examples, but once I can get people to really think about what they witnessed, right, because there are so many people who we all witnessed what happened in terms of, you know, seeing the presidency disrespected in unprecedented ways once he was in office we all saw it but we hadn't necessarily been interpreting it in the way that i want us to which is as a backlash to black success so it's like if i can get people to see it with that extreme example then they can start to see it in smaller everyday examples and even the modest example um, of enslaved people in the book, it's, but it's yeah, sort of, I think you're right. Yeah, the, the Obama thing is striking. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, it is, and and it and it, it made me think of um, the phrase: the exception um, proves the rule. Um,
1: Oh you know, yeah
0: given given you know um, the station that that he achieved, and then the backlash but um but, but let 's go back to the beginning um this painful of course beginning. Um, you write uh, that white Americans assured themselves that God had created some groups for the purpose of serving others, and we heard you know we 've heard that justification for slavery all through um American literature, but um, you also say that the slave cabins were spaces of triumph. Um, you start with Harriet Jacobs and her novelized autobiography, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. So explain her book, explain who she is and what she argues about maintaining dignity under that system, and then also how whites reacted to that.
1: Oh, wow. What a powerful way to put that question. Thank you. For me, starting with incidents in the life of a slave girl was really powerful because it was so clearly written with a direct address to educated white women. Educated white women had made um, you know, sentimental domestic novels really popular literature in the United States. And so Harriet Jacobs is very clear to make her autobiography novelized in ways that if you're familiar with domestic sentimental romance, you will recognize its conventions and be drawn to it. And she basically tells her life story as someone who um, is basically trying to escape being raped um, from the moment that she is in the household of who she calls Dr. Flint, in the book. Um, And of course, scholars have verified every part of her story. And so the real person is Dr. Norcom. But the bottom line for me is the way that because we understand that she's making an appeal to white educated women in the north, and trying to get them to see even me, I, you know, want to preserve my virtue. I want to be that heroine of a domestic romance that you can identify with. But to tell my truth, I have to admit the ways in which with no real choices, I had to keep my dignity and humanity and agency and use whatever tools I had at my disposal to keep my sense of being a human being who should be able to determine what happens to my body and my children. And so for me what was powerful was to see that just because she's appealing to white women readers does not mean that she isn't also participating in a community conversation that addresses other African Americans And that community conversation is about how do we define success in a nation determined to keep us from having any degree of success. So I'll give you the most powerful example to my mind that I discuss in the book, which is that we see a turning point in her narrative where Dr. Flint makes it very clear that she will never have the choice. If she's not going to willingly, quote unquote, sleep with him, she's certainly not going to have a choice to choose a husband of her own. He threatens to kill the young free black man that she had fallen in love with. And so she tells him, please leave here, leave, go to the North, have a life without me. You know, this is my reality. And for me, it was powerful to watch in the narrative how from that point onward, her definition of success adjusts because of that closed door. So she is now from that point on going to define success as something other than being the respected wife that she thought she would have a chance to be.
0: And can you talk about, what the word citizenship might have meant to her or, or what it meant to blacks at that time period? What is the citizenship that they're creating as they live through this, um, this horrific existence um, in the slave cabins?
1: Wow, you have such a way <laughs> of putting these <laughs> questions.
0: I'm just trying to, you know, be thoughtful here. And
1: <laughs> wow, I mean, you just go to the heart of it. And I just hope that I can <laughs> answer in a way that honors the question, because really and truly, the intellectual engagement of a question like that is kind of stunning to me. OK. Um, so how do we think about citizenship in this context? It's no question, right, for Harriet Jacobs, it's no question to her that her country of birth (laughs) sees her as anything but a citizen, right? Mm -hmm. There's no question for her. And in fact, she makes clear that the Fugitive Slave Act is an act that is aggressively countering any idea that she could ever be a citizen. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, she highlights in her narrative more than once and so she knows that the country doesn't see her as a citizen and that's the reason why her writing this text and creating a text in which we get to see her create a sense of belonging despite how aggressively her country is trying to deny her of that that is part of what i'm arguing is part of what we have to understand as the citizenship right so Um, By actually using writing to tell this story, you are bearing witness to and recording that there were people denied every right who nevertheless created a sense of belonging on their own. And so that to me is one way of asserting yourself as a citizen, because you're using that tool at your disposal to record what you did during slavery, when you you were clearly denied all of those citizenship rights, you're recording that history, but also you're doing it for posterity so they will know. Like to me, all of those contributions to a community conversation, all of those contributions are part of what I mean by citizenship. And so I guess part of what you're making me think about is the way that I'm interested in us understanding that community conversation and that sense of belonging that is created through the Conversation. In one way, we might think about that as an intense uh, continuity of this citizenship that I'm trying to trace. In other words, that I am here in 2020 in a moment where I continue to have my citizenship denied, right? By the way that the police can kill my partner with impunity or kill me with impunity, right? Like that's still a reality. So if we wanna talk about citizenship, there are ways in which it is still giving me, the United States is still giving me the undeniable message that I am not a citizen in 2020. And part of what I'm invested in doing by tracing what I'm calling homemade citizenship, again, you're making me realize this now as I answer you, part of what you're making me realize is that the con- the continuity is part of what I want us to understand. That even in the 1850s and 60s, when my ancestors were literally human property even then they were creating this sense of alternative citizenship with the tools at their disposal and the more that i can recognize that they did that the more i can take lessons from what they did for engaging the moment i'm in right now which has in some ways changed and in other ways hasn't so homemade citizenship as this dynamic practice right it always has to be practiced and cultivated It is continuous and we never have to feel like we're at the effect of what the United States has decided to do or not do in relationship to us. If we understand homemade citizenship, we understand that despite the changes that have and have not happened from 1861, when Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl was published to now, those changes, don't actually affect our ability to cultivate what I'm calling homemade citizenship.
0: Hmm. I um, I appreciate that answer. And I guess the next question that I would ask is, um, does she, and forgive me, I haven't read the source text here, but but does she ever find A certain level of peace and I guess the larger question is um, are people who were slaves during this time period do they ever find a sense of peace that hey I might not be a citizen of my country but I am a citizen of my family is that is in other words is that achievable can one achieve that um, living under that system
1: to me that is exactly what I'm tracing yeah, that. Um, but what I try my best to do in that chapter is never um, downplay the pain yeah. of having to make homemade citizenship out of these, you know, scraps,
0: <laughs> yeah. you
1: know, so part of what I'm interested in is on the one hand, what the United States does or does not do is not the be all end all of whether enslaved people felt a sense of belonging, right? Like that's a big part of what I'm talking about is that despite the United States being so violent toward enslaved people, enslaved people still found ways to create a sense of success and belonging. But I still try not to diminish the pain of it. And in all honesty, um, you know, um, Jacobs, is powerful in the way that she ends her narrative, because she ends her narrative by basically saying that I still don't have, you know, the house, the hearth and home that I actually still want. Um, This country is still preventing me from that. And I want it for my family. So she does end on a note of, you know, triumph in some ways in terms of having preserved her dignity and agency. She wasn't completely at the whims of Dr. Flint. But in other ways, she was still at the whim of the um, white woman who um, paid for her freedom, because this country made it to where she needed a white person to pay for her freedom. And part of what she makes so clear in the narrative is that the white woman in the book she's called mrs bruce who pays for her freedom was able to do it but her grandmother who worked her life worked her fingers to the bone was never allowed to buy her freedom her father was never allowed to buy his children so jacobs is very clear that there is nothing redeemable about the system by which the United States is operating, there's nothing fair about it. Because if it were just paying for somebody's freedom, her father should have been able to do it or her grandmother should have been able to do it. None of that was a possibility. But a white woman who decides to be nice to her can buy her freedom and create that sense of relief. So for me, part of what's powerful about Jacobs, and I try to be faithful to this and how I analyze the text, is that She does claim that agency and dignity for herself, but she never lessens the condemnation that she uh, levels toward the United States. Part of what we have to grapple with, um, and I guess part of what my career is about grappling with, is that the idea that there can be some kind of, well, was there some kind of triumph and hope to end on? That idea is not one that usually jives very well with the reality of african-american history you know we want a triumphant kind of outcome and even though my book is all about how african-american culture is not simply about protest that doesn't necessarily mean that the triumph can be simple and straightforward in any kind of way because i think that the best way for me to honor um, what my forerunners have done is to honor the way that they are claiming a sense of success and belonging for themselves. To me, what that means is a reason to be incredibly proud of the way that Black and brown people have continued to persevere and even sometimes thrive despite everything against them i have to say that incidents in the life of a slave girl is extraordinary in every way i actually struggle to impart to my students how extraordinary it is because it is as i have said the most verified slave narrative period because so many people didn't believe it and you know that often happens with black people and black women is that we always assume that it better be verified we can never just trust that they're not lying and so it's been verified like crazy but it also is so artfully written That you think that that's why we call it a novelized autobiography because it's so artfully written. So it is truly stunning for me to sit back and think about not only was she able to tell the truth about these horrible experiences, but then she was also able to produce just beautiful prose.
0: One of the other themes of of your book is homemaking um, and how that becomes a vessel of African American success um, and indeed their own kind. Of citizenship, uh, a sort of a place they could be the master. Um, And you write about Elizabeth Keckley. She went from literally from slave cabins to the White House. And so I want you to tell the larger story of Elizabeth Keckley, but um, first explain what it was like for her to watch another woman be whipped for grieving her son being sold.
1: Sure, yes. What an extraordinary, extraordinary woman, Elizabeth Keckley. Um, yes. And so she writes behind the scenes or 30 years a slave and four years in the White House. And she basically, um, the four years in the White House, as you said, is because she was the main dressmaker for Mary Todd Lincoln. Um, and she's this extraordinary woman who is born into slavery and ends up buying her um, buying her freedom and really with the help of white allies. One of the things that's interesting to me about behind the scenes is that she's invested in, in painting a picture of um, white allies who who help her out, really in truth, Incidence does does the same thing because Incidence is interested in acknowledging that it took a whole team of people to get her free. But Elizabeth Cackley ends up being able to raise the money to buy her freedom. And um, even while she's enslaved, her uh, skill with sewing is such a big part of how she's able to develop a sense of self the moments that you're talking about are are when she's younger and she's watching people who are sold. Part of what's striking to me about the beginning of the narrative is the way that she tells the story so powerfully about her own parents, right? The fact that her own parents, they were owned by different um, people Uh, in different towns, and then eventually got the permission to live together. Um, And then one night, in the very abrupt move, um, one of the owners decides they're going west to get rich off of opportunity in the west, and so now the family is split, the father is taken away, and so it's Elizabeth and her mother left behind. And what's powerful to me is that she gives us those details about how easily Black families are torn apart. She puts it together with these moments of not only her Black family being torn apart, but also watching other people's families torn apart. As you say, the example of the son who sold away and then the woman is whipped for mourning over it. And even once Elizabeth Keckley's mother is separated from her husband, her mistress says to her, how dare you, you know, act as if this is a big problem. You're not the only one who's being separated. And if you're just so lonely, then you can marry somebody else on the plantation. So Keckley is invested in making sure that we understand that these kinds of breaking up of family are deliberate forms of violence. She marks them as deliberate forms of violence but she doesn't make white violence the be-all end-all of what motivates people. So to my mind, part of what's interesting about thinking about her recording that moment that she saw and also recording her own family story is that she's showing us the ways that white society basically argued that, you know, Black people are not human. They don't have the same kind of intimate attachments, emotional attachments that we do. So separating their families is no big deal. I mean, you might as well just be separating puppies. That's the rhetoric. But what I make very clear in my study is that over and over again, when you read these texts, you see enslaved people acknowledging that they know that white people know that they are human. And treating them like puppies is part of the violence of this slave system. It is an aggressive acknowledgement that, oh, you still think you're a human being whose intimate attachment should matter, I'm gonna show you how much they don't matter. And it's so it's the
0: technique. Yeah, it's the technique. It's the yeah, I see. Absolutely. That. So you know. part of
1: what's important to me is that they show us that white violence is the reaction. Too often we are taught to read these texts as if black people are protesting against violence. But what these texts show us over and over again is black people record how they have a small victory, like still being in love with each other and caring about their family. And that small victory of seeing themselves as human is the thing that invites the attack of, oh, I'm gonna show you you're not human. How dare you? How dare you act as if you're sad that your husband is gone? You better go and get another a, another man on this plantation.
0: After the Civil War. So so there there is, this is what I consider to be the key moment in, in American history, um, or at least one of them. Uh, You have this moment where these amendments are being passed and there is a push for citizenship. And some, even white folks um, in the North certainly and what would would formally be considered the union are pushing for this and and the the amendments are passed and and, um, reconstruction is sort of underway. And there's this sense, at least from the modern reader of that there may have been some hope then. Um, But there is then this tremendous violence and this tremendous outburst. And we talked about the outburst uh, a little while ago. But you write that during this period that black men could be lynched for embodying the manhood that would be respected in white men. So explain what that means and then also how the rise of this white violence and of this first iteration of the Klan then impacts black citizenship.
1: Absolutely. Um, It's absolutely the case that there's a reason for hope during Reconstruction. And because there's a reason for hope, that's the reason why the backlash to that hope is so extreme. And that's when we get in post Reconstruction, the first peak of lynching. Um, So it's absolutely the case, to my mind, that what we have to understand is that every success is met with a backlash. So the Civil War, you know, immediately it starts getting recast as if it weren't about slavery, right? That's a form of violence too, right? The discursive violence of rewriting the history and pretending that it hadn't been about this and that it was just about something else. Um, But without question, in this era part of what we're dealing with in terms of black men who are embodying citizenship and then having that Um, violence come against them, it has everything to do with the fact that they're no longer enslaved. And so to actually kill an enslaved person meant that there would be a financial loss to the owner. And so that's the reason why Ida B. Wells, for example, argues that lynching doesn't become a phenomenon until after slavery is over, because it's the fact that they're not your property, that now we don't care about surviving. And now we don't care about whether black people survive. So in the reconstruction and post reconstruction era, black people are saying, okay, we're no longer enslaved. We're going to operate as citizens. And as they operate as citizens, um, their fellow white Americans want to remind them of their proper place, which despite slavery being over, should be a place of servitude. So this is where we get those examples of you know, um, sharecropping, convict leasing, right? You create laws that make it so that it is the easiest thing in the world to declare a black person a criminal. The fact that they don't want to work for a white person is enough of a crime. <laughs> you, you call them um, vagrants just because they wanna have a relationship of some kind of equality with a white person. Well, the law is going to make it so that their assertion of equality is a crime. I can just call you a vagrant and then the state is putting you under my heel again. But what I will say is that the idea of know your place aggression and um, knowing your place as someone that this country believes is subordinate, um, I see know your place aggression operating even during slavery time. So um, those moments where, you know, you shouldn't be crying about your husband being sold away is an example of know your place aggression as well. But I take your point about how, as we move through time, um, post-emancipation becomes a moment where we see a, a certain kind of intensification because since, There's no longer official slavery. Um, You have to devise new ways of making these Black people know their proper place.
0: And so how is the the home changing? How is the Black home changing as there's this kind of re-enslavement, but also this glimmer of hope that their place in the United States might potentially
1: change? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, to my mind, part of what I'm interested in in that time period is the way that I see the literature of that time period. The examples I use in the book are Francis Harper's Iola Leroy, which was published in 1892, and Pauline Hawkins' Contending Forces, which was published in 1900. Um, part of what those examples illuminate is the way that in this post-emancipation moment, when African-Americans are so aggressively trying to define what success will look like in this new moment of hope on the one hand, we're no longer in slave cabins, but um, also seeing all of the backlash, part of how they're defining success is to very aggressively in those texts, acknowledge the homemaking successes that happened even in slavery. So what we see in those two novels especially is we see um, communities come together to debate very often in the text about how they are defining success. And part of what the novels do um, is to actually make looking back at the slavery era, part of how they are going to debate what success looks like. So it's the way that you phrase the question is such an interesting one because I see what they're doing there as really trying to honor the homemaking success that happened despite slavery, but then also aggressively saying and debating with each other, okay, what does it look like now as we move forward? And part of what I believe Iola Leroy and contending forces show us is that the definition of success moving forward in this post-emancipation era is going to have to be that we build our homes not simply On love, but a deliberately used and framed love. Mm. What I mean by that is that part of what happens when these texts look back to the slavery era is that they see that Black people's love for each other was so often a tool that white enslavers could use against them,
0: hold them hostage.
1: exactly and so what i see these texts doing in 1892 and 1900 is making a, a case for how do we make sure that the love we feel for each other both familial love and romantic love how do we make sure that that love is not simply a tool that can be used against us
0: to hear these these upfront examples about what it was like to live as a slave and 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 to see your 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 heart robbed from you is 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 really important. And I'm glad that we're 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 um we're delving into these things because it's so important for people to hear um and for me to hear. So Michelle Obama, um we brought her up earlier, but but let's talk about her in a little bit more depth now. Um if you were to look at her resume, um she would seem to possess citizenship um in the way her predecessors as first ladies uh would. Um Barbara Bush comes to mind, Uh, born in America, educated at the highest level, um, a lawyer, a homemaker, and a career woman. Um, And her book, Becoming, talks about how she kind of battles these two sides of her personality and her persona, um, and she becomes first lady. Um, Yet so many have questioned so much about her. As a matter of fact, I think everything I just mentioned has been questioned by um, at least by her political opponents, attempting to essentially then rob that citizenship from her. And so some of the things we've heard over the years: is she a radical? Is she too strong? Is she manly? Um, some use the word militant when they describe uh, when they describe Michelle Obama's intentions. Um, what does her experience tell us? about black citizenship.
1: I think again it shows that I you know I think it actually shows us more about US citizenship than it does about black citizenship. Hmm. Because it demonstrates the degree to which US citizenship is about excluding black and brown people. So we will say that the country will respect you if you are law abiding. Um, We say over the decades that, well, you know, if black and brown people would just, you know, comport themselves according to middle class standards, you know, if they would do the nuclear family, heteronormative nuclear family thing, then maybe we could respect them, you know. Put on,
0: put on a suit and 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 protest, put on a suit and go to work.
1: Exactly. We say all of that, but over and over again, whether black people measure up in those ways or not, their citizenship is still questioned. I should say their belonging is still questioned. So then what that says to me, is that United States citizenship is defined as excluding anyone who isn't a straight white man. So part of what, part of what your question does too for me that I want to be really clear about and, you know, yeah, (laughs) I want to be really clear about this is that I think that part of what I am trying to grapple with in this book and part of how you're helping me think about why this was so important to me is that as I trace what I'm calling homemade citizenship, part of what I'm tracing is the way that violence is part of the very foundation of US citizenship. So part of what I mean by that is to the degree that African-Americans assert citizenship, there's a way in which they also by definition participate in a violent project of dispossession of indigenous populations that US citizenship at its very core is about exclusion. So the reason you're making me think about that is that's what I mean about Michelle Obama. She can do whatever you check off on the list and still experience that exclusion. So that tells me that American citizenship is about exclusion. If that's the case, then I also have to deal with the degree to which, as I trace throughout this book, homemade citizenship, part of what I also have to be alive to is the degree to which as Black people assert their, for example, right to the land, then they are also asserting a position that puts them in concert with the violence against indigenous populations. Because that land is theirs. And the only reason that I can assert a land claim is because the U.S. has already done the bloody work of dispossessing native populations. So I think what your question helps me grapple with is the fact that citizenship itself is a violent project in the United States. The United States has made citizenship a violent project. And so part of why... I'm talking in terms of belonging in the book so often is because I'm trying to honor the degree to which what African-Americans are doing is something that is recuperative in some ways, but it's also destructive in other ways, right? That the belonging part of it is recuperative in some ways, but even as you recuperate that, when you are engaging in a project whose foundation was laid by the United States more generally, right? You're participating in something that was violent from the start. So again, I hope that's not too much of a stretch, but to my mind, when you highlight Michelle Obama being the example of so much we say we're going to respect as a nation and then she still can't get that respect, then that tells me something not about Black citizenship, but about U.S. Mm. citizenship.
0: Um, one of the themes in your book is is about, is homemaking and and African Americans making a home in their home, in, the phys- in other words, the physical space of, of their home. Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts as to um, when Michelle Obama as first lady encouraged people to eat healthier, um, there was a tremendous backlash among some, um, not everybody, but among some. And I wonder if if any of that strikes you as here is a black woman trying to make the United States now, the physical boundaries of the United States, her home and being sort of a homemaker for everybody else and then experiencing that resentment. Is that a stretch or is that sort of on a mega level exactly what you're saying now?
1: It's so complicated because on the one hand, what that example does is it reminds you that so often the United States and Americans are okay with Black people serving them and serving them food. But At the same time, the idea that you're doing it from a position that isn't subordinate, that's the problem. Ah. So the fact that she is in the White House as First Lady, and that's the reason why she's in a position to do this, that's the reason it becomes a problem. And so I think it's a really, it's one of those examples that I actually want to think more about because it really gets to the contradictions of American culture more generally. Um, But I think at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's about the idea that she is operating as woman of the house and not as housekeeper when she gave that initiative. The other thing that you're making me think about, and now you're getting into stuff that I really want to do like in a whole different book, but <laughs> the, the thing that's so stunning about her Let's Move campaign is that, you know, she's a former executive of the University of Chicago Medical Center, So if anyone has credentials to offer this kind of feedback, it would be someone with her credentials. I mean, I haven't even mentioned the Princeton and Harvard degrees, right? So these are all reasons that she should have some space to make those those recommendations. But that is not at all how she tried to sell it, right? Understanding the racism and sexism of this country, she knew that she could not lead from her credentials. Her success would just would just spark backlash. So she hid it under this mom-in-chief uh, persona. She made sure that she highlighted being mom, not being someone with the degrees she has and the executive experience she has. So she was trying to, to diminish her success to inspire less hostility. But because this country is built on the idea that if you're not a straight white man, we will always punish you for your success, because that's built into how American culture works, her diminishing that still didn't work. But again, to my mind, the reason it doesn't work is because she's operating as someone who is woman of the house, not the housekeeper.
0: Mm. It was almost like she tried to do the job of first lady as the other 43 or however many 44 first ladies there were. And that was, uh, I see what you're getting at. That was the, the sort of trap that she fell into. Um,
1: Absolutely, because yeah. it's okay for them to do their job, but it will never be okay for you to do your job.
0: <laughs> um, uh, we're, we're living right now through um, a moment right now, um, and Black Lives Matter is is front and center. Um, and so, I'm just curious to hear how you think that would make another chapter of your book, um, and what do we learn about citizenship from this moment we're living through right now?
1: Well, I actually speak to it very deliberately in my coda, which I call from mom in chief to predator in chief, because, you know, the United States is a place that has built its culture on excluding everyone who isn't a straight white man. And so the fact that Barack Obama managed to get where he got uh, and then even won a second term made at least 63 million American voters, very invested in making sure that we move to having Predator-in-Chief in the White House. So to my mind, everything we're living through right now is the backlash to the success of the Obama administration. As you pointed out from the very beginning, Donald Trump, and as I point out in the book, literally made a political path for himself. The The path to political ascendancy literally was built on insisting that Barack Obama was not a citizen. That is literally what allowed him to go from being a reality TV star and failed business person to being in our political life in this way. And so, yeah, what we're living through right now is exactly about this country's tendency to respond to the success of black people and really all marginalized groups, everyone who isn't a straight white man, (laughs) to respond to their success with violence. That is what we are dealing with right now.
0: And the future? Where do we go from here? Where where is that? I mean, I I don't want to put you on the spot and have you predict the future of the world, but uh, but but where does this all go? Where where um what is the next step? Where does the future of citizenship lie for African Americans?
1: Well, again, to my mind, what we're talking about is U.S. citizenship, and so I think the more powerful question is, what does the United States want its citizenship to be? Does it want it to continue to be built on violence against everyone who isn't a straight white man. And I think what we're watching right now is how much a lot of Americans are invested in US citizenship being precisely that, violence against everyone who isn't a straight white man. I don't have a lot of reason to think that that is automatically going to change. I think that what we're watching is the, truth of what I trace throughout the book, which is that black and brown people and other marginalized groups will continue to pursue success despite every odd against them. And, you know, people who believe that the only people who deserve to have, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are straight white men, they will continue to come out of the box, responding to any level of success by other people with violence. And I think that that is very much an American pattern. And I think that the only way we're going to change that as an American pattern is to acknowledge that that is the American pattern. So what I'm hoping is that the way that we are watching, um, you know, to my mind, more white people who are getting seriously involved in Black Lives Matter and other configurations of acknowledging that not just straight white men should have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The fact that we see more white people getting involved in that is one way that I can understand that there's a possibility that our definition of US citizenship might be shifting right now. I certainly hope so. But there are so many ways in which, you know, to your point earlier, There's so many ways in which the backlash that we saw after Reconstruction is similar to what's happening now. I keep saying, well, the 1890s through 1930, this country is repeating those decades right now. The intense racial violence accompanied by intense success by people who had every odd against them. Like, that's literally what the 1890s through 1900 were in the the period of lynching that I study in the first book. And I feel like I'm living through that again right now. Um, So I hope that the fact that more white people are getting involved is the beginning of truly redefining U.S. citizenship to something that is a little less hostile for more people.
0: Dr. Karetha Mitchell, thank you so much for being here. Uh, She's the author of From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate
0: it. Uh, I certainly check out uh, that book and her other book, Living with Lynching, African-American lynching plays, performance, and citizenship. She is on Twitter at ProfCorey, that's P-R-O-F, K-O-R-I. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and with book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.